thank you so much for uh, talking with me and being on this. Yeah, thank you for asking me. You know, it's, it's just so here. cool. It's always so cool. Like, you listen to a comedian on, like, Spotify, basically, and then you have them on your podcast. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the world works. Yeah, now, this comedy stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm actually very happy that I uh, saw your TikTok last night about you having the uh, listen party of your album. Oh, yeah, that was a whole experience. Yeah, what was that like? bizarre you know i never heard unstable in its entirety since i'd recorded and released it like i did the track cuts i knew what was on there like nothing was a surprise but it has been you know a year since i recorded it and just uh having my first listen through be kind of through the eyes and ears of other people was very strange as a oh, as an experience to have a bar full of people laughing at things and seeing where they laughed and what they thought was funniest and I was uh, seated on a couch at the back of the room because uh, that's where we were doing the interview and stuff after. But people would come and sit and talk to me on the couch throughout the, the recording with stuff they really resonated with and wanted to express their opinions and what Unstable meant to them and that kind of stuff. So it was uh, it was overwhelming. And also just to hear how much I've grown as a performer. You can hear it in my voice. Oh, you know, I there, bet. Is, there is an additional layer to the point that 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 recording was done during a pandemic. I used to be on stage, you know, four to seven times a week. And then I'd only been on stage maybe four times that year before recording the hour. Right. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And I, I spoke about it a little bit last night, but it was also very, it was such a strange experience. I'm still kind of processing it today because I talked a lot about borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder. And since I released that album in January, I got a different diagnosis that I think is actually correct for me. So I, I was kind of processing the fact that I lived with an incorrect diagnosis for over a decade. And that's a lot to Yeah, I can't for. imagine that. Like what I, I think the album just resonated to me so much because I deal with mental health stuff. I have like anxiety and depression. So like I, I sort of really liked how like, sounds corny but like how not brave but like it was just cool like to see sort of that recognition of like oh someone has is talking about this yeah you know I didn't talk about mental health on stage for years I was very afraid of talking about it and I would start so the joke that I ended on the uh, the joke called period uh, which I do think is funny I was oh yeah it's I was talking about that last night was that I named the final track of unstable period and my most recent diagnosis is premenstrual dysphoric disorder which means that I get crazy around my period which I think is hilarious unintentional foreshadowing right. um but I uh I, I listened to all of the jokes about mental health and stuff, and I still feel that way about them. I still feel stronger about it. Um, you know, I, uh, it's, it's so much, <laughs> it's, it's so much to process and to work through. And I have oh, a I lot bet. of feelings I mean... that I want to express about it, but like, it took me a very long time to work through that particular joke, which truly is still a joke in, in process. Um, but I would start doing that joke at halfway through. I wouldn't get past the part where I said that I had bipolar disorder because rooms would get weird and then I would feel the crowd's energy and I would just panic and then pivot to a different joke because I thought oh, that yeah. I was alone. <clears throat> I thought that I was alone. I thought I was crazy and I thought that it was unrelatable. 
And then there was one night I was in Denton, Texas at an underground show. And I said, I'm just going to finish the joke. I'm going to say the joke the way that I wrote it and see what happens. And I'm just going to do it and power through no matter what. I'm going to say this joke. And it's what I'm, it's what I'm going to do. And so uh, after I did that, there was a girl who came up to me after the show. And she said, oh, my God, me too. I've never heard somebody talk about that on stage before. And that one person was enough of a domino for me to go, okay, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again and see what happens. And the more that I talked about mental health on stage, the more people would come up to me after the show and be open about what their diagnosis was or want to talk about their medication or their, their mental health journey. And the more that I said it, the more people showed themselves and felt comfortable talking about their mental health. And, you know, selfishly, it made me feel less alone as well. Um, so that's kind of been the journey through talking about mental health on stage. Really only in the past, you know, maybe two or three years of my career have I been talking about mental health and being open about diagnosis and <clears throat> diagnoses and stuff. Right. I just always think that's so cool when comps can do that. And, you know, it, it's always just the thing. Like, I've, I've talked a little bit about myself and it's just like, it's so hard because you want the punchlines to be there, but you also want to make that point of like, yeah, this is a real thing. <laughs> well, you know, there can be punchlines and you can talk about serious issues. Oh yeah, for sure. The, the point of comedy for me personally is to relate to people. And a lot of me pursuing stand-up comedy, I think probably was, fueled by my desire to process a lot of feelings that I didn't know how to handle. I started when I was 20, um, when a, a lot of things were going on with me developing as a human being. So right. the, the point of comedy is to be relatable. And oh, yeah. I, I think that that's more, it's more important to me now than it ever has been because of the pandemic and because we've been so separated as a society and as a nation. Um, right. be, to be able to get into a room and laugh and say, hey, I'm crazy. Yeah, you too? Like, that's something. It's, there's something very human about being able to say something and have somebody relate. And there's something very satisfying about being able to, you know, artistically transform something that was painful, traumatic, and isolating into something that's palatable, relatable, and humorous. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just thought that was just so cool to listen to and to really hear you talk about that that's really just so like enlightening really and uh you mentioned starting when you were 20 i started doing stand-up when i was 20 i always say 22 i was like 21 but i say 22 because of like a couple months but yeah like starting at an early age like that is so weird did you feel like were your peers around that time older so the first time I was ever on stage, I was 20 years old. I had six minutes of stage time. Um, I didn't really get to pursue stand-up professionally until I moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Right. Just because there was a lot more opportunity. There were comedy clubs. There was a system in place for how you could get better, how you could progress, and kind of a ladder that you could start climbing up uh, because there's a whole established community here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know, being, being at a young age, it's funny to hear you say that just because so many people that I've met now, and one of the friends that I had in Fort Wayne, my, my first uh, comedy friend, Ethan Burke, he started when he was like 14 years old. So me starting at 20, I'm like, I'm six years late. <laughs> what do you mean? Right. That uh, always, that always, uh, is a major thing that I always talk about 
with people on this podcast is like the age that they started doing comedy and like you know if they wish they started earlier or later and uh like to me i have such a weird thing because i started in local improv when i was like 16 and i really just wanted to do stand-up but there was no like way to do stand-up in my area until i was the age that i was when i did it so it was like just circumstance but i always wanted to do it so it was like hard it was like oh this is what i want to do and then when I finally got to do it, it was like, okay, now we're here. Now we're at this. I was place. definitely interested in stand-up comedy when I was in high school. But like you said, circumstance, it just wasn't an option. Right. So I kind of scratched that itch through National Forensics League. I did speech and debate. So I would do radio and impromptu and improv duo and that kind of stuff. Oh, that's so cool. Scratch that itch as much as I could. Right. Who were like the people that you, who were the comedians that you liked when you were in high school? I think that Dane Cook was probably who we all liked in high school. Oh, yeah. We all yeah. loved Dane Cook. Um, you know, Dimitri Martin, I'm one of those fangirls that found Bo Burnham on YouTube when oh, he yeah. was just starting out. So I'm one of those people. Me um, too, I. Yeah, I mean, for the early people that like first influenced me, Dan Cummins was a big one, Gary Goldman. Oh, yes. Um, and then my all-time favorite comedian is Kyle Kinane. Oh, Kyle Kinane, yeah. Uh, I love Kyle Kinane. Uh, I did an episode, I have this new series on this podcast where I break down a comedian. I'm, uh, I did two episodes, I did three. I did one on Jim Gaffigan, one on uh, um, uh, Mitch Hedberg, which is with like two other stoner yeah. comics who are like influenced by him. And then Kyle Kinane. And I love Kyle Kinane. He's yeah, just... Mitch is a big influence for me as well. When I first started doing stand-up comedy, I was only a one-liner comic. I was only a one-liner comic for really two or three years. Yeah, so a couple of my closest friends, like, in uh, comedy or one-liner comics, it was so cool to hang out with them and sort of, like, it to rub off on me a little bit and be like, oh, this is how you write that way. And still is very interesting to me to do that because it's very it's it's a lot more difficult than people i think give it credit for yes and no (laughs) yeah well yeah i just think like there's such a like uh to me i always think there's like kind of a like it sounds weird but like a not like a musical kind of equation to it a bit of like a rhythm that always is so interesting to me to see people do and be like, oh, you talk like this way, and then it gets that way. It's like oh, well, so cool George Carlin's the biggest example of that, right? When that comes to being a rhythm-based comedian, just every monologue he did had this this pacing to it. John Mulaney too. John Mulaney, yeah, yeah. The way that he speaks, it's very interesting, and it's definitely a part of the performance. Yeah, speech pattern is definitely a part of it. Yeah, I always uh, so. But what's really cool to me is that you uh, you go by the one name. Like, uh, how did that sort of start? Or were you always that on stage? Oh, because people couldn't pronounce my name. Oh, they couldn't uh, pronounce your name? No, my name legally... 
one N. So I got my doing business as uh, paperwork done with the additional N and bought all the domain space and just became Mana as a standalone. Ah. Yeah, it, it's just so uh, we cut out a little bit. So I missed the first part of your uh, answer. Um, oh, no. I was just saying I have, I have a very Italian last name. So I normally wouldn't go by my last name anyway because people couldn't pronounce it. And then uh, you know, beyond that, uh, just phonetically, my name is very difficult and is not intuitive on how to say it correctly. So I added the extra N into my name and bought the domain space um, and created my entire internet presence based on the extra N, uh, which is phonetic and I think easy to say. It's mana like Donna. Right. It's it's so It was just so cool to see that and be like, oh, one name, that's like, that's like really memorable and uh i saw um how do you i know it's so it's such a mixed thing of like do you like being on tiktok i'm like such a mixed like i have such a mixed view on it i go through my phases on tiktok i really love tiktok i love the uh community that i found on that particular social media app uh however it is often very frustrating as a creator, especially early on, I got a very, I got a very strong taste of what TikTok could be and what that kind of reach could do. And being connected with people that like the same kind of things that you like is absolutely addicting and validating. Right. Uh, but being a slave to the algorithm is frightening. And a lot of the things that creators do on that app are algorithm driven. So I made right. a little bit of a name for myself on TikTok because I was roasting people's favorite Disney movie and saying what it said about them as a person, which is a true thing that I used to do. I would go out to guys at bars and ask them what their favorite Disney movie is because it tells me everything I need to know about a person. And that attracted kind of a vicious fandom to my page. And oh. I I don't know. TikTok is just a, it's a fun place to be when it's fun. But if you get on the wrong side of it, we're, uh, it's a whole social media conversation, which is that people think that everything is and should be catered to them. Right. And that's not necessarily true. However, for TikTok specifically, it is called the for you page. So when somebody sees something that they don't like, they get very vicious and upset because it should have been for them. Um, right. Of course. Of course. Yeah, I've had I've had an interesting experience being on TikTok in the last year. But for the most part, I do very much enjoy it over there. It's just uh, sometimes it can be frustrating when you're not being connected with the people that you know would like you because, right. you know, they're out there. There are people that would love everything that you're doing. You're just not reaching them and you're out of your power to do that because you've you've given your your fate into the hands of the Internet. Right. Yeah, it's it's a thing like to me I, I always find it less and less uh scary to put stuff up up now online. If a set because if a set went well and I put it online, this is like what I feel like TikTok, it's like I don't really need the validation anymore. Most people feel like people in the crowd laugh. This is just for people to hear. <laughs> like you know. So that really Well, what so what's been frustrating for me personally on TikTok is sometimes I will share a bit of my stand-up set and it will eventually, no matter what, make it to the side of TikTok that believes women shouldn't talk. 
Right. And instead of just scrolling past something that they don't like or don't think is funny or not interested in, uh, people who have the time, apparently, will go through and report every video I have to try to get me removed from the app. Because not liking something and scrolling on is not enough. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I've received a lot of punitive behavior from men on the Internet, and that's been something to, uh, to deal with. I can imagine, like, that's still, like, a thing. Like, we like to think it's, like, changed, but really it hasn't, and people can still be so terrible. Oh, every day on my account, it's women aren't funny. I've just started replying, boys aren't smart. Like, it's so <laughs> right. stupid. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it's crazy. I, it's so weird to me. I always get, like, I don't know. I just being, like, I guess. Conversation. People cannot just accept that something might not be for them and that somebody else might enjoy it right they have to voice their opinion about everything all of the time right it is an incessant need to be heard which i think is probably a commentary to the society we've created for ourselves but oh yeah that's not very funny though so <laughs> you want to talk about comedy yeah, <laughs> I uh, the thing is, whenever you, whenever you start dissecting comedy and actually talking about the rhythm and the metrics behind it, it's not a very fun oh, conversation. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a very dark, it's a very dark thing to discuss a lot of the oh, time. Oh yeah, well, I always try and you know keep it light when I can. Uh, does uh, so you talked about um, your family like going back and seeing them and everything on that album? Do were they very support? Are they still supportive in your comedy, or do they support like do you have good like uh, support from them? So I am an only child. I, I have right. a half. I have a half brother uh, who's about ten years older than me. Uh, we talk every once in a while. Um, my mother uh, is more supportive now that I'm carving out my own space and proving that this is not a hobby or something that uh right. isn't worth pursuing she respects that uh she respects that i'm following the thing that i want to do and that i'm driven and ambitious my dad passed away uh right. a couple days after i got engaged this year a couple days after i released this album so right that is the extent of my family i do have some cousins that i've reconnected with um uh, that i'm becoming closer to and that's been something positive for 2021 uh, and my cousins are very incredibly supportive. Um, my cousin Tyler is super a fan of comedy, and uh, we we've connected on that level for for comedy and you know yeah. Sorry the uh, the family things. It's a whole thing at the moment. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, so uh, how, what was the so closed out comedy is like your brand that you uh, like created? Like what is that? That's correct. So uh, Claws Out Comedy I started two years ago. It is to normalize mental health. The mantra that I clung on to in 2020 was that bad bitches can be sad bitches. And so I say right. that uh, we are all mental health advocates and the real alpha pussy energy is spreading that mantra that bad bitches can be sad bitches. I think that I spent so much of my life feeling isolated and alone and crazy and I know that it wasn't just me feeling that way. So I think that being able to cling on to the fact that no one is alone 
and that it's all weather and these feelings pass eventually and that you can have this dichotomy inside of you of being somebody who is incredibly capable who also occasionally breaks down and that's part of the human experience and that that's okay so claws out is um you know i always said we were the cattiest comedy show in panther city that is why the logo is the little black cat is because it was started in fort worth and um you know i think that in a world that is so aggressive, I always tell people to keep their claws in at our shows and claws out when they leave. Oh, that's so great. Uh, so have you, um, this is just sort of like, I guess, going to your question. Have you gotten to, like, who have you gotten to work with, like, that really, like, was exciting for you? I got to work with Dan Cummins pretty early in my career, and that was, like, a huge deal oh, for me. great. I love his stuff. He was great. He was kind. He was insightful. He gave me, you know, one of the best weekends of my life was working with Dan Cummins. I could not believe that I got that opportunity. It was um, maybe a year after I'd moved down to Texas, a little over a year. He's one of the first people that I got to uh, MC a full weekend for at Hyenas Comedy Club, which was very cool. Um, recently, I got to work with Carlos Mencia. And that was surprisingly one of the most emotional, educational, heart-wrenching, validating weekends for me was getting to work with Carlos. He was an incredible human being. Um, And I learned so much from just watching him for the four shows that we did together. And just by talking to him and being in his airspace. I mean, some people, they have this crackling static electricity creative energy that just surrounds them like a bubble and carlos is one of those people oh that's that's such a cool thing to hear i've heard such great things about people that have worked with him and stuff and it's always so cool to have that like like i didn't work with him but i met uh when you mentioned gary goldman when i met him that was so cool just like how he was what i expected him to be like he was so friendly and so nice and like so helpful too and it's just like really cool to see that like yeah i would love to work with gary goldman one day that's like my bucket list of comedians i would love to work with yeah he uh he responds to me on twitter every once in a while he did a thing where he made father's day videos for just anyone who asks and he made this video for my dad for uh the last father's day which was really really nice Oh, that's so cool. That's... Yeah. Gary Goldman's a very kind person. I I am very overwhelmed whenever I get to work with people who are kind because it's an industry that can make you unkind and it would be easy it would be easy to understand why people would be short or dismissive or rude or crass. But you know, for the most part, most of the headliners that I've gotten to work with have been kind people who worked their way up and who understand what it's like to be in the position that I'm in currently. And they remember right. they remember what it's like to not be the headliner. And I think those are really important people to work with. And um, I think those are important people in our industry are the people who really earn their spot. You can tell who earn their spot. Yeah. That was the cool thing to me when COVID, like, not really ended because it hasn't really ended, but when people started coming back to doing comedy, a lot of my friends started doing shows with uh, people like Mark Norman and stuff, and it was like, oh, like, they view us as comics. It's like, that's kind of really cool. And when I had, you know, I've had uh, a couple of, like, 
you know, touring comedians on podcasts. It's always cool, like, to see, like, oh, there's no hierarchy. Like, they don't really view it that way. They just view you as a comic, which is so cool and, like, gratifying. Yeah, I mean, there's... uh... I don't know that it's like this in other industries. I can't speak to it because it's not my wheelhouse. But as far as comedy goes, I always compare it to the staircase and the elevator because sometimes comics start out early and they get these big opportunities that maybe they weren't ready for. And then they have to go back and take the stairs. And it's like they get bitter because they've already taken the elevator up. And it's like, oh, taking the stairs sucks. Yeah. It oh, sucks. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. But then the people who have taken the stairs the whole way, eventually when you get to the elevator, you're like, oh, this is so much better. And you feel right. like you earned the elevator because you walked up the stairs so many times. Yeah. That's so cool. So uh, is there anything now, like any uh, like specials now that you've, watch that uh you like or uh anything i am incredibly trapped inside with bo burnham wow. i am oh yeah. i cannot escape <laughs> I, love bo I can't escape the the special inside there are so oh, many things yeah. that like it's a it's a special where different parts of it will resonate with me at different points in this year and i i can't get out of it i am oh i love i just love how he how he had that space to do that and it always that's one thing that sort of I was thinking about when I was looking at his other specials like the last one that he did is like to be able to get like because I imagine like you get the like amount of money that you have to do your thing and then it's like okay how is everything going to cost when you do that and now that he had to do it in his own place and I love seeing the like the journey of it of like you finally get to see like a comedy special like made from the inside, like you know, ironically to use that yeah. phrasing. But it's like, oh, it's so cool to see it from the ground up, and to be someone who like saw it, like same as you, who like saw him in the YouTube era. Of like, to me, what's always so great is he. It really happened so fast for him, and I just always really admire how he's been able to deal with it because I don't think a lot of people would be able to I think it's you know it's crazy to have that yeah there's there's something to be said for somebody who has their life on display and who has to grow up in the public eye I mean Bill Burnham is you know maybe not the best example of people doing that but uh for for Bo in particular this last special there's one part that I've fixated on that I can't shake which is, and I don't want to misquote it, but uh, he, where he talks about how you'll go up like a scuba diver to the real world to go and just capture, you know, snippets or information to then portray and bring back to the real, the more real digital space, which is, I can't, I can't shake that idea because that's what we're doing all of the time. Like I did a show in Austin for, you know, less than 50 people and it was a private event and I put it up on TikTok and it got over a million views and like in the room everyone was happy it was a good time no one was upset everyone was pleased I put it up online people are just upset and angry and I keep getting the messages of women aren't funny and blah 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 and it's like it's so strange to take these snippets of real experiences 
that happened with the people who were there with you to tangibly experience it, but then to also present it online to right. a group of different people who may lack the context or who may lack the character and right. the growth and maturity to understand again, that maybe that wasn't for them that moment. Right. Sometimes, sometimes it's something cool where you could have 30 seconds at a show that was really fun. And then you put it up online and then, you know, thousands and thousands of people go, Oh, thank you for sharing this. This was funny. But it also is the risk of being delivered to people who will just be rude for no reason. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, the, the idea of living your life and then just capturing snippets of it or manipulating it or putting it up online and saying, Oh, well, you know, comics will do that all the time where they like try to stage a room to make it look like it was full. And then, you know, online say, yeah, killed it. Sold out show. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. To me, it always just, it always comes back to me that I, I, it's sort of a mix. Like I like it and I sort of don't like it how like niche stand up can be. So like, to me, that's always the thing that always bothers me. Like when I hear like you going through that stuff with like the sexism and stuff, it's like, you know, I feel like, don't people know there's women in comedy now? <laughs> it's like, it drives me insane. I think there's also another level of live performance that is maybe being lost on our society as it stands because, you know, so much stuff is available on streaming sites. And even the stand-up that you see that's being streamed live, it's been edited. It's been cut down. Like right. I, yeah. I got to see a peek behind the curtain when I worked with a headliner who was recording a special because he wore the same outfit for four shows. He right. did the same outfit for four shows so that nobody could tell the difference when they spliced the footage together. It looked like it was one perfect performance, right. but it was the best of four shows. It's one of four. Right. So like e even the stuff that seems organic that you see on streaming sites or on things that have been put together, like it's edited and there's oh, something yeah. to be said for something being so special about a live performance and about creating that connection between the comic and the crowd or even with individual people in the crowd. I'm trying to focus more on that, not on seeing the crowd as a whole I'm trying to see people as more individual seats and not just one blob of a mass crowd watching you. Right. Because uh, it's easy to see the crowd as one entity but it means more when you can actually make some eye contact with people and, and create that connection. Oh, of course. And I think that's like a cool thing to hear about you doing with your, uh, with your, did your, uh, like watch along with your, uh, your album. It's like to see that, to see how people take it in real time is so cool to me to think of that because to me, I'm like, now I'm like trying to figure out like, how do I want to talk to the audience? Like, it's such a crazy thing to be like, is this supposed to be performative? Is it supposed to be like conversational? It's such a. Yeah. Well, I think a... what made me nervous about the listening party was that I know how the show went. Cause I was there. I know right. what the crowd reactions already were to those jokes with those people, but I didn't know what to anticipate listening among a different crowd who was not there in that moment, especially because the tracks on Unstable are not in the order I said them for the show. So there was this additional pressure when I was trying to put the album together on, is this the right order? Are these the way I want to break the tracks up? So like, 
it was not just one singular performance, like from A to B. And there's a there's a bunch of stuff that didn't make it on the album that I cut out. I did a little over an hour when I performed it live, and I think that the special was only like thirty seven minutes or something, maybe. Right. I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it's just a, that's interesting to hear because, like, I've always wondered about that with like albums, like uh, if if it's in order or whatever happens with that that's always so just to me it's it's funny when i was re-listening to it uh you have the joke about gordon ramsay and i've been uh binging hell's kitchen for like the past month and i've been like oh that's so funny how oh those happens the worst ones like i tweeted that man an ungodly amount i don't know how i wasn't blocked truly (laughs) i tweeted him a lot i mean maybe like a hundred tweets like i tweeted a lot and it was filthy <laughs> like the one that <laughs> on to that to that joke of like just the two jokes because obviously this has been a joke that's been worked through years and cut down and cut down and cut down and honestly i put it on that album because like when i first started telling it i know i was one of the first people to say that joke because i was tweeting him it was real for me i was tweeting him filthy stuff all the time like it wasn't a joke uh, right. and you know to have it be cut down so much like when I first started saying it it was me saying every tweet I'd ever said to Gordon Ramsay and just reading it off of my phone and an open mic and then it became okay well these are the two more funny ones and then it became okay well these are the two more funny ones that are also pretty clean or easy to clean up if I have to perform for like a PG or PG-13 audience so that's right. why it's those two tweets but like it was so many. I, I cannot express to you yeah, <laughs> how disgusting of a person I was to that man. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I love wordplay in comedy, and I just noticed that a lot with your album. There was, like, four trash where I was like, oh, this is really, like, up my alley of what I like. Like, what sort of influences you to do to do that? Like, uh, I love the, uh, the one thing that I loved is the uh, the talking about the similarities between like owning a baby and having a gun? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's like this is just like the most one of the most perfect jokes ever. <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear you say that because I had not said that joke before I got on stage that night. Like some of these jokes really were written for unstable, and I was trying to hype myself up in the green room. I was like, I just got to say it right once. <laughs> I can't imagine that doing that. Wow. That's surprising to me. Because I always think like when someone has an album, like it just be like, you know, something that you'd have forever. But oh, that's really be. cool to hear that that oh, it, works. it should be that way. <laughs> I'm not saying that what I did was right, but it is what I did. Um, I was just very focused on wanting to record an album. I wanted to create content. And it was also kind of a statement for me because as you know, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of comics quit or they reestablish what they wanted to do, or they started chasing different, you know, life careers, life paths. And so recording an album, when I started at the end, uh, at the beginning of the year, that was my goal was that I wanted, cause I set a professional goal for myself every year. And I tried right. to, if not exceed that, and so my goal for 2020 was to record an album. My date to record was the weekend of March 15th, 2020. 
And for obvious reasons, that did not happen. Right. <laughs> so I, I moved it and I still knew that I wanted to get it done. So it was October 29th was the next day that I could. Uh, does, uh, so you talked about um, your family, like going back and seeing them and everything on that album. Do, were they very support, are they still supportive in your comedy? Or do they support, like, do you have good, like, uh, support from them? So I am an only child. I, I have right. a half. I have a half brother uh, who's about 10 years older than me. Uh, we talk every once in a while. Um, my mother uh, is more supportive now that I'm carving out my own space and proving that this is not a hobby or something that uh, right. isn't worth pursuing. She respects that. Uh, she respects that I'm following the thing that I want to do and that I'm driven and ambitious. My dad passed away. Uh, right a couple days after I got engaged this year, a couple days after I released this album. So right. that is the extent of my family. I do have some cousins that I've reconnected with uh, that I'm becoming closer to. And that's been something positive for 2021. Okay. Uh, and my cousins are very incredibly supportive. Um, my cousin Tyler is super a fan of comedy and uh, we we've connected on that level for for comedy and you know yeah sorry the uh, the family things it's a whole thing at the moment yeah I bet. yeah yeah i understand uh so uh how, what was the so claws out comedy is like your brand that you uh like created like what is that that's correct so uh claws out comedy i started two years ago it is to normalize mental health the mantra that I clung on to in 2020 was that bad bitches can be sad bitches. And so I say right. that uh, we are all mental health advocates and the real alpha pussy energy is spreading that mantra that bad bitches can be sad bitches. I think that I spent so much of my life feeling isolated and alone and crazy. And I know that it wasn't just me feeling that way. So I think that being able to cling on to the fact that no one is alone and that it's all weather and these feelings pass eventually and that you can have this dichotomy inside of you of being somebody who is incredibly capable, who also occasionally breaks down. And that's part of the human experience and that that's okay. So Claws Out is, um, you know, I always said we were the cattiest comedy show in Panther City. That is why the logo is the little black cat is because it was started in Fort Worth. And, right. um, you know, I think that in a world that is so aggressive, I always tell people to keep their claws in at our shows and claws out when they leave. Oh, that's so great. Uh, so have you, um, this is just sort of like, I guess, going to your question. Have you gotten to, like, who have you gotten to work with, like, that really, like, was exciting for you? I got to work with Dan Cummins pretty early in my career, and that was, like, a huge deal oh, for me. great. I love his stuff. He was great. He was kind. He was insightful. He gave me, you know, one of the best weekends of my life was working with Dan Cummins. I could not believe that I got that opportunity. It was um, maybe a year after I'd moved down to Texas, a little over a year. He's one of the first people that I got to uh, MC a full weekend for at Hyenas Comedy Club, which was very cool. Um, recently, I got to work with Carlos Mencia. And that was surprisingly one of the most emotional, educational, 
heart-wrenching, validating weekends for me was getting to work with Carlos. He was an incredible human being. Um, and I learned so much from just watching him for the four shows that we did together. And just by talking to him and being in his airspace. I mean, some people, they have this crackling, static electricity, creative energy that just surrounds them like a bubble. And Carlos is one of those people. Oh, that, that's, that's such a cool thing to hear. I've heard such great things about people that have worked with him and stuff. And it's always so cool to have that. Like, like I didn't work with him, but I met, uh, when you mentioned Gary Goldman, when I met him, that was so cool. Just like how he was what I expected him to be. Like he was so friendly and so nice and like so helpful to, and it's just like really cool to see that. Like, yeah, I would love are... to work with Gary Goldman one day. That's like Me my too. bucket just... list of comedians I would love to work with. Yeah, he uh, he responds to me on Twitter every once in a while. He did a thing where he made Father's Day videos for just anyone who asks. And he made this video for my dad for uh, the last Father's Day, which was really, really nice. Oh, that's so cool. That's... Yeah. Gary Goldman's a very kind person i i am very overwhelmed whenever i get to work with people who are kind because it's an industry that can make you unkind and it would be easy it would be easy to understand why people would be short or dismissive or rude or crass but you know for the most part most of the headliners that i've gotten to work with have been kind people who worked their way up and who understand what it's like to be in the position that i'm in currently and they remember right. they remember what it's like to not be the headliner and i think those are really important people to work with and um i think those are important people in our industry are the people who really earn their spot you can tell who are in their spot yeah that was the cool thing to me when covid like not really end because it hasn't really ended, but when people started coming back to doing comedy, a lot of my friends started doing shows with uh, people like Mark Norman and stuff. And it was like, oh, like they view us as comics. It's like, that's kind of really cool. And when I had, you know, I've had uh, a couple of like, you know, touring comedians on podcasts. It's always cool, like to see like, oh, there's no hierarchy. Like they don't really view it that way. They just view you as a comic, which is so cool and like gratifying. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I, I don't know that it's like this in other industries. I can't speak to it because it's not my wheelhouse. But as far as comedy goes, I always compare it to the staircase and the elevator because sometimes comics start out early and they get these big opportunities that maybe they weren't ready for. And then they have to go back and take the stairs. And it's like they get bitter because they've already taken the elevator up. And it's like, oh, taking the stairs sucks. Yeah. It oh, sucks. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. But then the people who have taken the stairs the whole way, eventually when you get to the elevator, you're like, oh, this is so much better. And you feel right. like you earned the elevator because you walked up the stairs so many times. Yeah. So cool. So uh, is there anything now, like any uh, like specials now that you've, watch that uh you like or uh anything i am incredibly trapped inside with bo burnham wow. i am oh yeah. i cannot escape <laughs> I, love bo I can't escape the the special inside there are so oh, many things yeah. that like it's a it's a special where different parts of it will resonate with me at different points in this year and i i can't get out of it i am oh i love i just love how he 
how he had that space to do that. And it always, that's one thing that sort of I was thinking about when I was looking at his other specials, like the last one that he did is like, to be able to get like, because I imagine like you get the like amount of money that you have to do your thing. And then it's like, okay, how is everything going to cost when you do that? And now that he had to do it in his own place. And I love seeing the like, the journey of it of like you finally get to see like a comedy special like made from the inside like you know ironically (laughs) phrasing but it's like oh it's so cool to see it from the ground up and to be someone who like saw it like same as you who like saw him in the youtube era of like to me what's always so great is he it really happened so fast for him and I just always really admire how he's been able to deal with it because I don't think a lot of people would be able to. I think it's, you know, it's crazy to have that. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for somebody who has their life on display and who has to grow up in the public eye. I mean, Bo Burnham is, you know, maybe not the best example of people doing that. But uh, for, for Bo in particular, this last special, there's one part that I've, fixated on that I can't shake which is and I don't want to misquote it but uh he where he talks about how you'll go up like a scuba diver to the real world to go and just capture you know snippets or information to then portray and bring back to the real the more real digital space which is I can't, I can't shake that idea because that's what we're doing all of the time. Like I did a show in Austin for, you know, less than 50 people and it was a private event and I put it up on TikTok and it got over a million views and like in the room, everyone was happy. It was a good time. No one was upset. Everyone was pleased. I put it up online. People are just upset and angry and I keep getting the messages of women aren't funny and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's so strange to take these snippets of real experiences that happened with the people who were there with you to tangibly experience it, but then to also present it online to a group of different people who may lack the context or who may lack the character and the growth and maturity to understand Again, that maybe that wasn't for them that moment. Right. Sometimes sometimes it's something cool where you could have 30 seconds at a show that was really fun and then you put it up online and then, you know, thousands and thousands of people go, oh, thank you for sharing this. This was funny. But it also is the risk of being delivered to people who will just be rude for no reason. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, the, the idea of living your life and then just capturing snippets of it or manipulating it or putting it up online and saying, oh, well... You know, comics will do that all the time where they like try to stage a room to make it look like it was full and then, you know, online say, yeah, killed it, sold out show. But right. it wasn't. Yeah. To me, it always just, it always comes back to me that I, I, it's sort of a mix. Like, I like it and I sort of don't like it how like niche stand up can be. So, like, to me, that's always the thing that always bothers me. Like, when I hear, like, you go into that stuff with like the sexism and stuff, it's like, you know, I feel like, don't people know there's women in comedy now? It's like, it drives me insane. I think there's also another level of live performance that is maybe being lost on our society as it stands. Because, 
you know, so much stuff is available on streaming sites. And even the stand-up that you see that's being streamed live, it's been edited. It's been cut down. Like, right. I, yeah. I got to see a peek behind the curtain when I worked with a headliner who was recording a special because he wore the same outfit for four shows. He right. did the same outfit for four shows so that nobody could tell the difference when they spliced the footage together. It looked like it was one perfect performance, right. but it was the best of four shows. It's one of four. Right. So like e even the stuff that seems organic that you see on streaming sites or on things that have been put together, like it's edited and there's oh, something yeah. to be said for something being so special about a live performance and about creating that connection between the comic and the crowd or even with individual people in the crowd. I'm trying to focus more on that, not on seeing the crowd as a whole. I'm trying to see people as more individual seats and not just one blob of a mass crowd watching you. Right. Because <laughs> it's easy to see the crowd as one entity, but it means more when you can actually make some eye contact with people and, and create that connection. Oh, of course. And I think that's like a cool thing to hear about you doing with your uh with did, did your uh like watch along with your uh your album it's like to see that to see how people take it in real time is so cool to me to think of that because to me I'm like now I'm like trying to figure out like how do I want to talk to the audience like it's such a crazy thing to be like is this supposed to be performative is it supposed to be like conversational it's such a yeah, well, I think a... what made me nervous about the listening party was that I know how the show went because I was there. I know right. what the crowd reactions already were to those jokes with those people, but I didn't know what to anticipate listening among a different crowd who was not there in that moment, especially because the tracks on Unstable are not in the order I said them for the show. So there was this additional pressure when I was trying to put the album together on, is this the right order? Are these the way I want to break the tracks up? So like, it was not just one singular performance, like from A to B. And there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that didn't make it on the album that I cut out. I did a little over an hour when I performed it live. And I think that the special is only like 37 minutes or something, maybe. Right. I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it's just a, that's interesting to hear because, like, I've always wondered about that with like albums, like uh, if if it's in order or whatever happens with that. That's always so interesting to me. It's it's funny when I was re-listening to it. Uh, you have the joke about Gordon Ramsay, sure. and I've been uh, binging Hell's Kitchen for like the past month, and I've been like, oh, that's so funny how. Something oh, those are the worst ones. Like, I tweeted that man an ungodly amount. I don't know how I wasn't blocked. Truly, <laughs> I tweeted him a lot. I mean, maybe like a hundred tweets. Like, I tweeted a lot, and it was filthy. <laughs> like, the ones that made <laughs> it on to that, to that joke of, like, just the two jokes. Because obviously, this has been a joke that's been worked through years and cut down and cut down and cut down. And honestly, I put it on that album because like when I first started telling it, I know I was one of the first people to say that joke because I was tweeting him. It was real for me. I was tweeting him filthy stuff all the time. Like it wasn't a joke. Uh, right. And, you know, to have it be cut down so much, like when I first started saying it, 
it was me saying every tweet I'd ever said to Gordon Ramsay and just reading it off my phone on an open mic. And then it became, okay, well, these are the two more funny ones. And then it became, okay, well, these are the two more funny ones that are also pretty clean or easy to clean up if I have to perform for like a PG or PG 13 audience. So that's why it's those two tweets. But like, it was so many, I I cannot express to you. Yeah. (laughs) How disgusting of a person I was to that man. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I love wordplay in comedy, and I just noticed that a lot with your album. There was like four tracks where I was like, "Oh, this is really like up my alley of what I like." Like, what sort of influences you to do to do that? Like, uh, I love the uh, the one thing that I loved is the uh, the talking about the similarities between like owning a baby and having a gun. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's like, this is just like the most, one of the most perfect jokes I've ever heard. <laughs> that so happy to hear you say that because I had not said that joke before I got on stage that night. Like some of these jokes really were written for Unstable and I was trying to hype myself up in the green room. I was like, I just got to say it right once. <laughs> I can't imagine that doing that. Wow. That's surprising to me because I always think like when someone has an album, like it just be like, you know, something that you'd have forever. But oh, that's really be. cool to hear that that oh, it, works. it should be that way. <laughs> I'm not saying that what I did was right, but it is what I did. Um, I was just very focused on wanting to record an album. I wanted to create content. And it was also kind of a statement for me because, as you know, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of comics quit or they reestablish what they wanted to do or they started chasing different, you know, life careers, life paths. And so recording an album when I started at the end, uh, at the beginning of the year, that was my goal was that I wanted, cause I set a professional goal for myself every year and I tried right. to, if not exceed that. And so my goal for 2020 was to record an album. My date to record was the weekend of March 15th, 2020. And for obvious reasons that did not happen. Right. <laughs> so I, I moved it and I still knew that I wanted to get it done. So it was October 29th was the next day that I could, maybe try to get it done so that's that's what that process was and um it just became my statement that hey not only am i not quitting i'm still doing what i'm supposed to be doing and i'm I'm still here it was just a hey i'm still here kind of move from yeah that's a major thing like how long did did it take for you to come back like on stage from when covid started did what was like the break? Texas. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I, Texas. Oh, yeah, Texas is, yeah, they were back. So. Uh, it's not something that I'm necessarily proud of, uh, but it's also not something I'm ashamed of. Um, my first time back on stage inside, I believe, was early May at the Addison Improv. It was the first comedy show in the country after the initial round of shutdowns. Right. And- Everything was socially distanced, you know, props to the improv. They did everything they were supposed to do. It was at capacity, socially distanced, um, you know, masks required. They checked temperatures. All of us had our own microphone. Like, it was as safe as it could be. Um, But that was the first time I'd been back on stage. And then, I mean, truly, it was like maybe once a month 
if once a month leading up to October, I had done a show in uh, Paris, Texas at LMAO, I think uh, a couple days before October 29th, the week before October 29th, we did a show out there and I did kind of like a full run of everything I wanted to do for Unstable. And that was like my test run, um, which obviously got a bit shaken up then by me immediately having to drive to Indiana thinking my dad was going to die. Oh, right. Right back. So there was, there was a lot of stress and then the production value of everything on top of it and like being on the back end of organizing my own show and booking it and accounting for the other comedians and, you know, that the hassles that come with working with a venue naturally and ticketing and all of that kind of additional stress to it. It was a lot. It was a lot to get it done. Oh, and I bet. When I put it in the context of this is what I went through to create this piece of art, I feel like I can judge myself a bit more kindly when it comes to me being happy with minuscule things about it. Or like, I, I'm not, I'm not too nitpicky about it. Um, I'm glad it exists. And I think that after listening to it last night, even though that diagnosis is not still true for me, uh, the things that I said about it, I think are still important. And I still feel the kind of way that I feel about mental health. It's, it's reinforced my, my feelings about a lot of things. Um, but it was, it was strange to listen to that last night just because it's, that's a different person. Right. It's, <laughs> I, it's hard for me to grasp how much has changed in my personal and professional life in the last year. So. I think that's a cool thing though, to see that happen with, you know, any artist, like musician or, you know, comedian or anything, is that it's always changing what your life is going through. So to have that, like, of course it was really you, because that's what you were living with. That must have been, like, I can't even imagine how frustrating and, like, also a relief it would be to be like, okay, I don't have this thing. It's this. But at least you... Not really. It's, it's not a relief in terms of changing the label of it. Somebody... I had this experience a few uh, a few weeks ago where somebody said, "Oh, you just have PMDD. You're so lucky." I was like, "It was to be misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder for over a decade. Like, I'm not right. so lucky. I just found like a diagnosis is not for the person who is ex exhibiting symptoms. A diagnosis right. is doctors to try to figure out a treatment plan for you. Like, it's very easy to get wrapped up in a label." and to find your identity in a diagnosis. So, you know, PMDD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, none of those words matter. What matters is working with a healthcare professional to fix specific issues. And it's very difficult. And I think that this is something I wish I would have been explained to when I was younger, which is that you have to invest in yourself and you have to be curious about these things for yourself because nobody is going to harvest this data from you and not everything is portrayed in your blood work. So like the only oh, for sure. I got a new diagnosis at all is because I had been getting off of the heavy duty meds. We we're going to see what I was like unmedicated. But in order to do that, I treated myself like a science experiment and I kept an activity log of everything I ate, drank, ate, or uh, did and felt like I kept activity logs. I kept like weather notations just to see every factor that could be leading into me having an episode. And only after breaking down that data, did I take it to my doctor and say, Hey, I think it's this. Here's why I think that like you have to be overly invested and curious about yourself 
to try to get yourself the treatment that you need. And it's hard to, you know, do that for yourself. It's a very strict act of self-love to be interested in yourself in that way and to care about yourself in that way. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's so, that's a lot of like, just for me to think of like doing that, that's where they, was your doctor good about it? Like, were they, did they listen? Do you feel like they listened to everything that you did? Yeah. Well, my doctor just said, yeah, maybe let's try this and see. And since we started treating like PMDD, um, I just haven't had an episode. So it has to be that. But I had this experience last night where I was listening to myself talk about bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. And I do remember being so proud and feeling so good about like being able to talk about those things and accept those things about myself. And then I sat on a couch in a bar in Fort Worth last night and just got a little bit angry because I spent so much of my life trying to grapple with these terms and these labels and living with the kind of ostracism and the kind of side-eye glances that come along with those labels. And they oh, I I properly, yeah. it wasn't even something that was a correct match for me. And I got a little bit, I had a feeling about it. It's very, it was very hard to live with that diagnosis in general, but then to on top of it, just, have that not even be the right one. Like I had finally reached this point of acceptance. And then as soon as I released that album and talked about it, there was an immediate need to pivot and treat for something else. Right. It's yeah. It's I could hear that out. in your voice when I listened to when I listened to the thing on TikTok and I was like, you know, I was of course I'm always, you know, I always try to be careful that like what I ask and stuff. And I figured you'd be cool with it because, you know, you talk about it in your act. So I hope yeah. that I'm not a uh, that I haven't asked anything too personal. No, I'm I'm an open book. Good. Uh, so uh, one thing that I usually ask a whole lot uh, is probably fun to do is: uh, Do you have any like stories about like hecklers or crowds that were just like bad or anything like that? Um, I don't truly get a lot of hecklers. Uh, for the most part, if somebody wants to, I, I engage with them. I've never had, you know, the experience that I've had on TikTok. I've never had that kind of hatred lie right. <laughs> like at me. Like I've never, I've never had anyone like that. Really. I mean, um, you know, maybe like six years ago, I was doing a show. I, I can, so I can speak to this, um, for claws out comedy. I train all of my MCs to use pronouns as little as possible. Uh, when introducing the next comedian, like for instance, they would say this next comedian, instead of saying, uh, this next girl or this next guy, uh, specifically when it is geared towards someone who identifies as a female, because when I first started doing comedy, I was told by a booker that everybody in the crowd thinks they can do comedy. So it's one of the few jobs that you have to get on stage and immediately prove that you are better at and that you deserve to be there. He told me that when people get on stage, they have 30 seconds to prove they're funny. And then he said, when women get on stage, they have 10 seconds to prove they're funny. Because there is this permeated idea, this idea that's permeated itself into our society that women are not funny. Right. Uh, men have 30 seconds, women have 10. And so as much as I hate it, I think 
through my personal experience that what I was told was probably accurate. Yeah, that sounds completely accurate to me. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right. But but whenever an MC or a, a host is bringing up the next comedian, when they say this next comic come to the stage, you're going to love her. You've already eaten into that performer's time by saying her or she. Right. So we train our MCs to say this next comedian or this next performer, put your hands together for your feature act, like just words that do not reveal that it is a woman or a female performer coming on stage. So, um, you know, as far as heckling, eh, I mean, I had some people walk out of a show before I'd even got on stage, which I think this experience probably lends to me leaning into that idea of not announcing that a woman's going to take the stage. Right. these two guys walked out because I hadn't even stepped on stage yet. They go, well, female comics aren't funny. And they just left, which like, I think that it's very brave of them to announce to a whole room that their dick's that small. Like that's so funny. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that small dick energy. Not, not yeah. cancel anyone for body, whatever. Oh God, the society we live in. No, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, I think, we, I think yeah. small. I think you take my chin. <laughs> if you have a small <laughs> <laughs> with that i had even said or done that was just their pre-existing notion i think that probably the best heckler story was uh, i was in uh i was in like a college town and uh, it was a lot of younger kids but there was like an older couple in the back and there was a woman that was heckling everybody heckling everybody on the show like i wasn't special she was yelling at everybody the whole night right. but it got to be my turn and I took a minute and I mean, she was like, you know, late sixties. Uh, it was very out of place for like this little college town. Not to say that I'm ageist, just for <laughs> trying to keep navigating, not being. Oh, ageist. I know. It's like, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it, it was someone who was out of place for this particular space. She stood out, she stood out and then she kept yelling, which made her more of a focus. Uh, but I said, Oh my God, you remind me so much of my grandma. And she said, really? And I said, yes, except she had the decency to die a decade ago. Please shut up. <laughs> that's probably my, my only real heckler experience. And then at the end of the show, like they came up, her husband came up to me and I was like, ah, hey, sorry for yelling. Thanks for playing along. And he's like, no, you're my wife's favorite. Can she have your autograph? So, like, I, I don't get a lot of, like, really bad. Oh, that's so, that's so cool to, see, to hear that. Like, to me, early on, I just used to be, like, so, like, flight when it was, like, fight or flight. And now, like, I've just realized, like, I'm way more tougher about it. I'm just like, this is my time. I'm not going to let, you know. Yeah, well, this I think take away from me. It, it comes to a human thing of trying to understand why someone is yelling in public, <laughs> you know? Right. Because everyone's yelling for a different reason. So there are different kinds of hecklers. Um, right. Yeah. But for the most part, any heckler has not been specifically in response to something I said or did. It's just been people who in general were pretty disruptive the whole night. Like I haven't really had somebody yet that says, I hate you because of you said this. Like I haven't right. had of a reaction on stage. I'm sure I will someday. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm pretty open to people speaking to me during the show. I don't like being yelled at or screamed at, but like, I, I'll do crowd work if it happens to me. If somebody wants to talk about, oh, you're getting married tomorrow or whatever. Like, I, whatever. Right. I'm entertainment. I'm out there to make sure everybody has a good night. Like, it's my job. <laughs> it's my job yeah. to make sure people are happy. And if somebody 
is having the biggest day of their life the next day, sure, have a moment at the comedy show the night before. Right. Like, that doesn't bother me. I think that's a big thing, too, is that, like, I sort of had to, like, my mom's very supportive, and she, she like, gets it now. But, like, it's it's stuff like you, people don't really know, like, especially audience members, like, don't really know how to act sometimes. And it's not malicious. It's just, you know, it's just hard. You yeah. Know, it's a weird social setting. Comedians need to recognize, because obviously we're entrenched in it. We know what etiquette is for a comedy show. Uh, somebody going out for their first night, like you might be their first experience of comedy. They may have never seen a live comedian before. And like, right. it's, or it's not the same as sitting in your living room and watching it. Right. And there's the additional etiquette of like, wow, people really haven't been out for like a year and y'all forgot how to act or maybe you didn't know. <laughs> exactly. So there is yeah. that, extra, that extra thing to be considered when being in public now. Right. So do you do you plan on? I know it's so crazy with COVID and everything going on. Do you have any plans to do another album soon, or are you? Uh, I feel okay speaking to this. Um, my plan is to record either an EP or a full album, depending on where I'm at at that point in my life. Uh, whenever I get closure from my dad's passing in whatever capacity that presents itself as, uh, that is when I will record my next album. I do have it all planned out. Um, I, I have a lot of ideas cooking on the back burner, but that will be the time uh, that I record a second album. That seems like that seems, that's a really good answer. That seems like a good thing to do. You know, when you have a major thing in life, just be like, this is when I'm going to do it. Um, and you want to be special. You want to be, you know, that's, that's the kind of the thing that's always so cool to me. And like, uh, like, I guess the mix of it to me is like, you want this to be like, I always think with like albums and stuff, like I really want to do one someday. And like, to me, it's like, once I do one, I want to do a bunch of them, but it's like, you want to, you don't know if it's going to be like a time capsule for everything or if it's just like the beginning, like, you know, so I think that part of this is the uh, the community and the, the culture that we've created for ourselves as comics. Um, if I could go back in time, I would record more albums. Right. Like the idea that you shouldn't record or put out content until you're absolutely ready and everything is perfect. But that's not the world no. we live in now. Like it, maybe that was the case in the 80s when, you know, you were pressing stuff on a vinyl and you were releasing stuff at shows and like it was harder to like it meant more and right. not to say that it doesn't not to say it doesn't mean more now but it's different and it's more accessible and it's easier to create this kind of content and anybody can do it so like if i could go back in time i would break myself away from this idea that you shouldn't record anything until other people say you're ready or until you feel it's perfect or until somebody else tells you like, Hey, you should do this because it really is just a chapter of your life and you're documenting it and you're putting it out into the world and saying, this is what happened to me during this time. These are the jokes I wrote. And that's okay. Like there's this weird there's this weird idea surrounding content creation that it has to hold up to a certain kind of standard or it has to meet some kind of certain bar, but that's, that's what other people are putting on you. And that's not oh, yeah. true. I mean, outside of the comedy community, there are plenty of people that just like consuming comedic content. 
And, you know, when I was out at this, uh, at this listening party last night, so many people brought up the Claws Out Comedy Podcast. And we haven't done an episode in over a year. Like, it was my pandemic pivot. But people are still listening to that. And that surprised me. Um, so, yeah, if I could go back in time, I would create more content. Like, my friend Danny House is a very talented musician. He's put out, like, 70 albums. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, 70, right. 70 albums since I've known him. Like there's, there's something to be said for just recklessly being yourself and putting who you are out in the world. And that's okay. Like that you, you build it up in your head to be something that it doesn't have to be. Oh yeah. So my two cents. Yeah. I think we just see it so much. Like we see our people that we look up to doing it and then we're like, Oh, I want to do something like that. And it's like, you got to realize like where you are. Like that's the one thing that I had to realize is like, you know, to be at your own pace and be, you know, of course, always strive for and push, like, to to do better. But, like, also realize, like, where you're at. And uh, I always think that's so cool just to hear that you were able to do that and to have that whole entire thing. Like, that seems, like, I'm just, I, I, I give you a lot of credit because that was, I don't know if I could, like, deal with that. Like, to, to have an album out and then have people, you know listen to it after like that is just it's crazy to me it's so cool though to hear that you were able to do that it's weird but I, I think that you just have to accept it as part of the job like being seen and perceived as part of being a stand-up comedian yeah I, putting uh, yourself open to scrutiny is just part of it it's just part of it you have to be even if you're not okay with it you have to find a way to navigate around it so like if you don't like to engage with people online then stand up i don't know it, it's a lot yeah uh, job hazard right <laughs> so are you still in texas i am oh cool i uh i actually uh i went to um austin texas in may and uh i wanted to go see you but i didn't know if you were anywhere and it was just like i was there for like three days and i was like oh she looks there. I was like, I yeah well, i should have gotten area um, the Claws Out Comedy did have a residency in Austin for a weekly at a newer venue. And then we parted ways. And then uh, we started doing stuff with Austin Eastsiders with Claws Out, which was cool. And that's the other thing that I'll say about Claws Out is, um, you know, you can also create your own space. Like there are spaces that already exist. But if you see something that like there's a gap or there's a there's a space for or there's not a space for a certain type of person you can create your own space you can make your own club like yeah. you don't beg for a seat at a table when you could just build your own like that's, yeah, that's, that's the one that cool thing yeah. out your own area that's the cool thing that i've learned about comedy and just in recent times and like being involved in it is yeah if you want to do something nowadays you have to you have to make it your own like if you want to do it so that's the cool thing to have yeah like, so while claws out is my thing you know it's not it's not about me um, right. i do try to make it feel like other people have ownership in it and like can take dominion over like yeah bad bitches can be sad bitches and that's something that helped me or like people can find their identity within claws out of like just having a space to exist and to not be okay and that being so like the bad bitch bingo game is super fun i'm really proud of that that's our biggest thing that we've got going on right now as like a regular recurring event repurring event excuse me <laughs> oh that's so oh that's cool you do like a 
like a bingo. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, I created Bad Bitch Bingo. So it's an interactive comedy bingo game. And I designed every card. And so it's, uh, you know, there, there are spaces on there like mommy issues and traffic, politics, genitals, you know, stuff that comes up during the comedy show. But right. we, sell, uh, we sell sponsorship spaces on that. And we give away prizes to the first and second place bad bitch of the night. Because um, it is like regular bingo, but when you get a bingo, you don't get to say bingo. It's bad bitch bingo. You have to stand up and yell, I'm a bad bitch, and we have to believe you. So, right. I like if people yelling, I'm a bad bitch, and in, in a space that I've created. Like, I like, I like empowering people to feel capable and competent. Yeah. So, that is so cool. Uh, so, um, your social media is really easy. It's monocomedy. Like Mono everywhere, right? Mon, right. I knew I was yeah. going to say it wrong. <laughs> People do. That's why you, you asked me earlier why I changed it. That's why. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> stupid. <laughs> M-O-N-A comedy. And then uh, I'm very on TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. I'm now on OnlyFans as well. Um, I haven't posted anything on there. I was thinking about putting up, uh, if I bring the podcast back, I'll put the podcast up on OnlyFans. They're trying to just destigmatize themselves from not being this explicit content. And I was like, right. oh, yeah, I see why you've contacted me. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, at first I was like, oh, OnlyFans thinks I'm so hot. They're recruiting me. And they're like, we're really trying to break away. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, for sure. I understand. <laughs> you want me to make it on your page? Understood. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, obviously, Claws Out Comedy, C-L-A-W-S-O-U-T Comedy, and uh, ClawsOutComedy.com, Monocomedy.com. I am very active on the interwebs, which some might argue is the real space that we exist in. Right. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Is there is there anything else I can answer for you today? Uh, no. Just thank you so much for being on, and I hope uh, you have a good week. Thank you. I hope you do as well. All right, bye. All right, bye.